0: Hi, thanks for joining us again as we study the book of Numbers. We're in Numbers chapter 28 and 29 uh, today in our series of Wilderness Wanderings. And we're going to be uh, covering a number of verses. We're not going to go in depth on every one. I'm going to trust that you can go back through and read some of that. But I want to give you some of the key points and key thoughts that you can take away as you uh, read through the text yourself. I've entitled this Save the Date, and that's because, you know, in our culture, we've really uh, taken that phrase, save the date, and it's become a very popular item, especially around those festive events such as weddings or you know, uh, anniversaries or birthday parties or bridal showers and baby showers. And it's usually around the idea of somebody wants you to set aside a day to come and spend time with them or to honor someone that you think is worthy of being honored with your time and oftentimes with your treasure, with, your, with a gift. And so they've, they have set that day aside, and they ask you to set that day aside as well. Well, when we come to the book of Numbers, especially these two chapters here, God is giving Israel a save-the-date. But he's not just giving them one save-the-date. He's giving them seven save-the-dates throughout the year. He's saying these are going to be days that you are going to set aside, and you're going to set aside because the person who you are to honor is worthy of honor. Is worthy of worship. And so God says, You're going to set these days aside for me. Now it's interesting that we have these terms, this term holiday, that we use, and we look forward to our holidays. But when you do the English study backwards, you know, the etymology of the word, it comes from the two words, holy days. They are days that were to be set aside, often in religious contexts. And you think about Israel, they had these holy days that were to be set aside for the purpose of worshiping, for the purpose of reflecting. What they did is it gave the Jews the opportunity to be able to celebrate, to commemorate, and to reflect deeply on their faith, on their history, and on the many blessings that God had given to them throughout their, throughout the, their history. And so as we look at these holy days or these holidays of Israel, we're going to understand that, that God wants them to celebrate him. God wants them to commemorate. God wants them to reflect. And those are all really important, important dynamics to these holy days as we, we look through. Now, last time we started to briefly mention that the Jewish calendar, the Jewish year that God is going to talk about here, is set up on what is called a lunar calendar. We operate in our, in our society on a solar calendar. We go with the 365 and a quarter days, and we have that every year. We have the solar calendar, the same number of days. Well, the Jewish calendar operated and still does operate on a lunar perspective, on the, the moon's phases and the moon's cycles. And so it comes up often, and let me go back to that slide there. The, when we talk about it, there's all these different names. Now, in Numbers 28 and 29, they're going to focus in on two months. Because all of these feasts and festivals uh, focus in or are timed off of two main months, the month of Nisan, the first one, and then the month of Tishri, which is the, in the third column over second one down. Now there's another festival in there and we'll talk about when that occurs, but it's still based off timing from the month of Nisan. So it's all based on those two, these, these uh, two chapters are based on those two months as, as we'll look here shortly. Now, the question has come up last time I asked you, why does Easter constantly change the day? And it's because Passover and when Passover changes, well, that led to uh, one, one rabbi talked about that a, a Gentile came in and was talking to him and some of the other, other Jews of his synagogue and said, when is Passover this year? And they looked at him and said, it's the same day that it is every year. And the, the gentile says, no, 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 seriously, it, it's not. When is Passover? And they're said, it is the same day. It is every year on the 14th of the month of Nisan. And that works from that lunar calendar perspective. But in our solar calendar, the date, it changes. It's not always on the exact same day. And that's why Easter fluctuates too. So how do we reconcile all this? How do we wrap our heads a little bit around these lunar calendars and some of the difficulties that it poses even in this passage? When we talk about the lunar calendar, it would start the new month when the first sliver of the new moon could be seen. And there had to be two credible witnesses to say they saw it, and then the festival of the new moon, which we talked about last time, which is in uh, chapter 28 following like verse 11 uh, through 15. And, and that, would, that would occur. The problems that arise with this, this lunar calendar is if you have a strictly lunar calendar, there will be 12.4 months every solar year. So that means that every year, if you just go with 12 months, you don't go with 12.4 months, you go with 12 months, you lose 11 days every year. So now what that causes is it causes Passover and the first of Nisan to show up 11 days earlier and then show up 11 days earlier the next year. What would end up happening is Passover would end up in the winter, and then in the fall, and then in the summer. And that that's not when it is to occur. So how do, how do we reconcile that? What is done? The Jews then, because of that, every three years, they add a 13th month to their calendar to reconcile that. They had what is called second ADAR. You'll notice up at the top of that screen there, ADAR is the 12th month. So every three years, they add in for, let's put it in our terms, leap ADAR. We do it all the time. We still do the same thing. Every four years, we have to fix that quarter of a a day uh, solar calendar issue, and we had a leap day. We had the leap year that year on the 29th of February so that we have those days. The calendar now, though, this, the lunar calendar is much more standardized. It doesn't just go simply by the, the seeing of the, the moon. They're able to do it mathematically, and it's been, it's been laid out for centuries on a, a more consistent basis that they can tell you 20 years down the road when all these feasts are going going to occur. So they have reconciled the number of the mathematical problems that occur there. The second problem occurs with this— and this one really comes up a little bit in the text, not so much directly in the text, but because of the culture and the, the historical background of the, the Jewish people. Nisan is the first month, according to the, the scriptures. When we look at the 14th day of the first month, verse 16, it talks about, and that is gonna be the month of Nisan. So that is one, month number one. The problem is, Culturally now, Rosh Hashanah, or the new year, the Jewish new year, is in Tishri, which is the seventh month, you'll notice on the calendar. It's all the way down at the bottom. It is, you know, right in the middle of September. That's when the Jewish new year is. So wait, which new year is it? How do we we reconcile? Wait, God says this is the new year, but the Jews celebrate this as the new year. So are they wrong? Did they, are they violating scripture? No, they're not. We'll, we'll talk about what happens here. The solution really is this. One, historically, Tishri did not become the new year until after the Babylonian captivity. So historically, even in most of the Old Testament, it wasn't considered the new year. The new year began with, uh, with Nisan. In fact, the term Rosh Hashanah, does not even occur in, in Jewish writings until even after Jesus Christ is uh, died, buried, and ascended. And it comes even a century or so later that the first time we have it in writing talking about the uh, Rosh Hashanah being the new year. And so it's historically, now it is woven into Jewish culture and there's nothing wrong with that. But it is not necessarily the biblical statement. I mean, think about it this way. When we say happy new year, we think what? January 1st. It's New Year's Day. So 2021, January 1st, it's New Year's Day. But let me ask you this. When does your company's fiscal year begin? For us at church here, it's July 1. It goes July 1 to the end of June. What about the school year? We have it starts in September. For some of you, it goes all the way around because you just decide you're going to torture your kids and keep them in school 24/7 all, all year. But the new year, the school year begins usually end of August, beginning of September, right in that that time period. So we use those terms, and the same thing happens here. What are they What are they doing? Passover Nissan, the first of Nissan, is the beginning even though Passover is on the 14th day, but Nisan is the, the beginning of the religious calendar. And then the civic and the agricultural calendar begins in Tishri. So it's, it's not a problem, it's not a conflict, it's just how they're using terminology. The religious calendar begins in the spring and the civil civic calendar and the agricultural calendar for them begins in the fall because their rainy season starts in that September, October, and goes through the, the winter months when they can grow their harvest, not the dry season in, in the summer months that we have. So it makes, it makes sense. It's just understanding that and wrapping our heads around it so that we can understand what's going on. A little bit more cultural background, just so you can understand some of the things in the text. I want you to be able to, to notice there's words that repeat. Another one we talked briefly about it last time is the word holy convocation, You'll notice it down in verse uh, 18 of chapter 28. There shall be a holy convocation. Verse 25, 26 talks about it again, that there is going to be a holy convocation at a number of these feasts. Not in the weekly, not not necessarily in the daily, but at these major feasts, there are a number of holy convocations. It's a time of gathering. It's a time of meeting together, whether it's coming, and, and this does not mean pilgrimage feasts, because there's only three pilgrimage feasts, but we don't, we're not going to cover all that today. But that's not what's saying, oh, everybody has to go to the temple or to the tabernacle. But it is a time of gathering together with a holy purpose in mind. The other one that comes up, and this is really important to understand, this shed new light on the passage for me and really helped me understand more of the, the, the Jewish culture as well, especially in the Word of God for the Old Testament saints. Notice in chapter 29, verse 7, The word that comes up here, the word for work, it talks about, uh, verse 7, for the day of atonement in chapter 29, you shall not do any work therein. But if you notice in chapter 28, let's look at verse 18. It talks about, on the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no manner of servile work, the King James says, it says it again in verse 25, verse 26, a number of times in chapter 29. The word servile work, or that, the concept servile work is occupational work. In other words, you are to take a break from your everyday job. It's a holiday. So you have Sabbath work, like it talks about in Leviticus, where you're not supposed to be making food, making bread. You're not supposed to be doing all these extra things. You are supposed to rest on this day. But these holy days, where it talks about no servile work, it talks about you, you take a break from your occupational job. Again, God has designed our bodies not to go, go, go. God has designed our bodies to take a break, to take some rest, to enjoy a break from what we do every day. God understood that we needed that physically, we needed it mentally, emotionally, we needed it family-wise, we needed it as a community. They were to take a break from that. But on that day of atonement, He specifically says you're going to treat this like a super holy Sabbath day. There is no work on that day, in chapter twenty-nine and verse verse number seven. There, so we'll talk a little bit more about that when we go through the passages. So, taking all of that in mind, we come to the feasts. We come to where we're at. Last time we talked about God is to be the central part of our life. He is not to just be a spoke in our life but he is to be the hub of our life, the center, and everything radiates off him. He is connected to every single facet of our life. He is to be central to our life. And so God tells Israel that he is to be central in all that is said and all that is done in life. And God is going to intentionally insert himself into the Jewish calendar, and he should be intentionally inserted into our calendars as well. And so in verse, uh, verses one through 15 of chapter 28, you have the situation where he is inserting himself daily, weekly, monthly. We covered that last time. And I think it's important to remember, we are creatures of habit. And the routine is an effective way to help us create discipline and to help instruct us in our lives and to help instruct others in our family and our community and uh, those around us. That we have these habits in our life. Routine is good. And so God says, I'm to be part of your daily routine. And then from verses 16 through the end of chapter 29, he's going to focus completely on the Jewish yearly calendar. He's going to say, here you go. Here is what your year some of the things that you are to look like. It is to be part of in everything that you do. Now, when we look at these yearly feasts, it's important to remember that not all of the Jewish feasts that are that are that are held today are considered biblical feasts. They're part of the Jewish heritage. That's great. That's no problem. We have those too. We have an Independence Day. We have a Memorial Day. They're not they're not spiritual days. They're just a holiday that we use to commemorate something important in our in our culture. That is the case with Hanukkah. Hanukkah is to celebrate the feast. Uh, the, it's a feast of dedication. It is the uh, the. Moment that they celebrate the, the purification of the temple, the rededication of the temple in, the, in between in those silent years, between the Old and New Testament when the temple was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. And in 165, we have the rededication. The other one is the feast festival, feast festival, feastival. let's call it a feastival. A festival of Purim. Purim, it has roots in biblical heritage. The book of Esther is all about leading up to Purim and the, the day of the lots, the feast of lots. And it's about the day that God's deliverance of his people through the hand, uh, from the hand of Haman into and through the hands of Mordecai and Esther. And so we have the, the feast of Purim, but it's not a commanded biblical feast, but it is a Jewish heritage feast. Now, when we talk about the feasts of the Lord, they're laid out in Leviticus 23. You can go back and read through that as well as here in Numbers 28 and 29. They can be easily remembered uh, in two different different segments. You have the spring feasts, which is Passover, Unleavened Bread. Uh, You have first fruits, and then you have Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. And then you have the fall feasts, which are trumpet, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And they break nicely, even in this passage. Chapter 28 is gonna cover the spring feast, Chapter 29 is gonna cover the fall feast. And so as we have those feasts of the Lord laid out, we can look in and we can say, okay, what does God want us to understand? Now, in this passage... God does not cover all of the intricacies of the passage. He doesn't talk about everything that's supposed to happen. He doesn't even lay out the, the purpose or the types or the, the, the foreshadowing of anything here. He's just going to cover, basically, if you look back to 28 verse 1, what's he going to say? He says, Command my children and say from them, My offering and my bread, for there to be sacrifices to me by fire for a sweet savor, and they shall observe them in their due season. That's the synopsis. He's saying, I'm going to tell you what you're to bring and when you're to bring it. And so that's what God focuses on here, even with the feasts. It's not a discrepancy between other stuff. He's just focusing, and Moses is going to focus here specifically on what they're to bring and when they're to bring it. And we're not even going to cover a lot of the what. You can read through that because it's a lot of repetition of the same number of bulls and the same number of lambs and goats and. Uh, wines and grains and oils, all those those different dynamics that are going to be continually brought. So let's look at a couple of these. Starting in verse 16, you have, uh, on the 14th day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord. He doesn't even go any further than that, other than saying, hey, we know that this is the day that Israel remembers their deliverance by, from the death angel by the Passover lamb out of Egypt. We know that it's to occur on the 14th day of Nisan, which is the first month. And you can read more about it in those passages. Numbers 9, Leviticus 23, Exodus 12, Deuteronomy 16, all cover and they, those cover a number of those feasts as well. those passages are the ones. If you want to get a good s- handle on the feast, read through those passages uh, as well now that 's all, and that 's all he has there, but it 's assumed he, one Moses has already covered a lot on the Passover earlier in the book, and the Passover is just integral to the people, and they understand about about the Passover. The next feast then comes in verse sixteen on the fifteenth day of the month uh, is the of this month or the first month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread is going to be uh, there, and it's going to be for seven days. And so he talks about for this entire week, we know they're not supposed to eat leavened bread. It reminds Israel of the haste in which they left Egypt uh, to get out. There was no time for the bread to rise. And it's on the 15th day. So you have the 14th day of Passover. You have the next day you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread that occurs. But notice in verse 18 and verse 25, there's special days here. On the first day of this feast shall be a holy convocation, the gathering, and you shall do no servile work. It's a holiday. Now you have the rest of the week until you come to the eighth day on verse 25, where it talks about what's going to happen on the eighth day. There's going to be another holy convocation, and you're not going to do any occupational work. You're going to take a day off. So this week is on the beginning and end. You get, you get days off. During the rest of the week, in your normal part of life, you're not to be eating the unleavened bread. And so there was that dynamic that was occurring with the, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, taking a break, but also remembering not to be taking that unleavened bread, remembering what God had done. Then the next feast that occurs is the Feast of First Fruits or the Barley Harvest. Now, it's on the 16th day of Nisan. So think about it you have, you have Passover, next day is Unleavened Bread, the next day is going to be the, the Festival of First Fruits. Now, in this passage, it's not really mentioned here. There's some debate on whether or not in verse 26, it says, also in the day of firstfruits, when you bring the new meat unto the Lord, that that that's mentioning uh, the firstfruits. And and it's a possibility. It could be that it's mentioning this firstfruits. But it could be that just because it's part of that whole celebratory passage uh, with the unleavened bread and the Passover, that it's just sort of lumped in together. We're not real sure, but if you want to read more about it, you can go back to Leviticus 23. But the Feast of First Fruits is important in the calendar of God, and here's why. Because from the Feast of First Fruits, seven weeks later and one day, is going to be the next festival. So this Feast of First Fruits, the barley harvest, is going to set the timetable set the clock ticking down to the next the next big feast the next pilgrimage feast even on top of that interestingly with these first fruits it was forbidden for for the Jews to take part of any of their new barley harvest until the barley was waved before the lord by the priests and offered to the lord so they had to wait for this to start using any of their new barley that they may have harvested already because the first goes to the Lord. Now, Malachi even takes a step further. He says, if you choose to neglect the first fruits, it is considered robbery to God. What a challenging thought to think that the very first things, the provision that God has given to us in our lives, the first is to go to God. First and foremost, making not all the other things, not all the other bills. My first is to give back to God the provisions that he has provided to me for my life. And, and I think at times I need to do better at that, thinking about giving first and foremost to God, not, not to art, not to family, not to any, but first and foremost to God. Now, you have the, the first fruits of the barley harvest, and then 49 and a day later, 50 days later, you're going to have the next festival the next feast which which shows up down here in verse 26 and one of the reasons i don't think that it's the other harvest is look how it continues also in the day of first fruits when you shall bring new meat unto the lord remember meat is the grain there after your weeks be out so when these the time of weeks those 49 in a day are complete then you are to come with this next first fruits offering the next first fruits offering was the next harvest that they had. In, in their culture, in their agricultural schedule, the barley would come ready first to harvest, and then 50 days later, it was time to harvest the wheat. And so now they would be harvesting the wheat, and they would do the same thing. They would offer that first fruits of the wheat harvest unto the Lord. And it's 50 days later. Now we get, when you take that term Shavuot, and you talk about the 50 days In Greek, the 50 days, you know the term. It's Pentecost, which is really neat how the whole schedule starts to lay out in the New Testament. But again, we're not taking time for that. We'll do that at another time. Uh, So this is gonna be May, June of our calendar is when, when this is going to occur. So you have the first of the wheat harvest being offered. And the beauty of the first fruits, both the barley and the wheat, is that when you give the first of the harvest, it's signaling there's more of a harvest back there to come. And that's a beautiful picture again when Paul says Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. There's more resurrection to come. We're not gonna be left in the ground. We are going to be resurrected. The dead in Christ shall rise. And so it's a beautiful, Christ is the first fruits of those resurrection. There's more harvest to come. And so it's an exciting, exciting thing to think about. It signaled that the entire crop was his, the waving before the Lord, All of this is yours, and we're giving back a portion of what is already yours. And that is a perspective that we as Americans and Christians need. Everything I own, everything that is provided to me is the Lord's. My kids are the Lord's. My house is the Lord's. My cars are the Lord's. And I am to use them and to give back to them and allow them to be used by the Lord because they're not mine, they're his. And that's what these, these feasts signaled and reminded the people. So after this feast was over, now there's going to be a four-month hiatus of feasts. It's a, it's a long stretch. There's, there's the dog days of summer, so to speak, between, you know, between the 4th of July and you're waiting for Labor Day. You're waiting for that next you know, day off. That's, that's sort of what they have here. And you're going to have four months between the end of chapter 28... And then the beginning of chapter 29 is a four-month, roughly a four-month period that occurs here. So the fall festivals, the fall feasts, what what are they about? These feasts occur in mid-September, October, and they're all in the same month. They're all in the seventh month, the month of Tishri, uh, by the Jewish calendar. And these contain two of the most the two holiest days in the Jewish calendar and the greatest festival that occurs. In, in Jewish uh, culture. This is, a, this is a big, Passover is the most important festival, but the last festival, it's a, it's a big deal. There is, we'll, we'll talk about it here in a second. Fall feast. The first one is the feast of trumpets. Okay? We have that in verses one through six of chapter 29. You're going to see in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no occupational work. It is the day of blowing trumpets unto you. And then there's going to be all these burnt offerings to make uh, atonement and to be given to God. And they're going to be seen as a sweet savor in verse 6. Very similar in repetition, but it is that day of trumpets. This is now known, as we just mentioned earlier, the Jewish New Year. It's Rosh Hashanah. The trumpets were used to prepare the people and to let them know that there is a special day coming. This is the month. In 10 days, something amazing is going to happen. And it was a time of preparation and reflection and repentance that as Israel was moving toward the the holiest day of the year, that they were to prepare themselves that they were to be getting right and making sure everything was in order with God. And as a nation, they were to begin to get ready so that as the priest would be prepared on that next day to go in, you can read more about it in Leviticus 23, as the priest would prepare for this day of atonement and all the nation would would come before the Lord, it was a holy, sacred day. It was Yom Kippur, the day of the covering the day that their atonement would be made, that holiest day on the, the calendar. Now look, look in your, your Bible here, down at verse, uh, tw- verse seven, 29 verse seven, it says, and ye shall have on the 10th day of the seventh month a holy convocation and you shall afflict your souls. This is the one that's not, a, it's not a joyous celebration, though the result is joyous. It is a day for somber reflection. It is a day to set aside and remember. We have some of those days in our American heritage where we're supposed to remember those who have fallen on Memorial Day. We remember on 9-11 those who died and the, the attacks on America. But this is a personal affliction of the soul. This is to be thinking about you individually It became a time of fasting and reflection. That's what most commentators and Jewish scholars hold to, that the afflicting your soul is you're going to fast this entire day. And you are going to remember when those grumbling pains come up, you're going to reflect on what God has done and what God is going to do on this blessed and most holy day, the day when we will be reconciled as a nation back with God. It's also a day of no work like the Sabbath. It is not just... A feast, this is a day you do nothing. You prepare for this day. It is a holy, consecrated, and sacred day. It's almost as if, you know, when we think about atonement, think about you're with a friend and you and your friend have a severe falling out and you really want to reconcile that relationship. And you're looking and saying, what is the one thing that can fix this? I don't know what it is. I've tried this and tried that and tried this. What is that one thing that is going to bring us back together? whatever that one thing would be is the atonement that is needed. Well, when it comes to the Jews and their sin, when it comes to humanity and their sin, the one thing is the blood of an individual through the death, through sacrifice. That's the one thing. And so they needed this atonement day. They needed the priest to take the the blood and to sprinkle it upon the altar. It's the day that is set aside for this atonement. These days were about, this day was about getting right with God and through the covering, by the covering of sin. It's the day that the priest placed their hand on the one lamb who would die for the sins of the the nation. And then the one hand, he placed hand on the other and it would be allowed to go out as the scapegoat into the wilderness, picturing that the sin that was going to be spilled, the blood spilled for was going to be covered, and it would be removed. It would be gone. It would be as far as the east is from the west. It's no more. And that's what the beautiful picture of the atonement does. It removes our sin. It covers our sin because God, God shows that here. It's also the day that the priest then went into the Holy of Holies, the one day of the year. And he took that blood and sprinkled it upon, the, holy, the, holy, uh, upon the, the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. And that all occurs, all to picture the reconciliation, the bringing back, the atonement of Israel's sins. And so it was a very somber day, but it became a very joyous and reflective day. It's very similar. Like for us, we have a, we have, when we do communion, it is a joyous celebration, but it's also a moment of reflection to remember what occurred what happened on our behalf so that we could have that communion with God, so we could have fellowship and relationship with him. But it's a joyous, it's, it's giving thanks, but yet it's a somber, somber reflection as well. And then the last feast that comes up is in verses 12 through 38. Now, the first six feasts get 27 verses. This last feast, 26 verses, almost the exact same number of verses for one feast, because it is a great and joyous feast. I also think there's another reason in this passage why there's so much covered on this feast, because of what it represents. The Feast of Tabernacles, or the the Feast of, sometimes called the Feast of Booths, or sometimes called Sakat, uh, it's, it's used in all different ones in the, in the King James, you'll see it. It was the last feast, according to the religious calendar. It was five days after the Day of Atonement. So the 15th day of Nisan is when it would occur. It was an eight-day festival that would occur. And on the first and the last day, there was, to, again, to be that holy gathering. And there was to be no occupation and no servile work being done during that time. Now, the tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, was to represent, what are we talking about in the book of Numbers? We're talking about the wilderness wanderings. It was to represent God's providential care and provision for the nation during the 40 years in which they lived in tents. It was to be a time that as as the the Jews would go outside their normal dwelling place and they would live in these tents for, for these eight days to remind themselves that everybody lived in them for 40 years. It was a great and beautiful picture of God's faithfulness and Israel's trust in him. Even though we know they didn't always trust We've seen that through the grumbling, the complaining, the the bickering, the infighting. We've seen that, and yet ultimately there is a trust and a faithfulness, the faithfulness of God and the trust of the people in him. Now this feast had the most sacrifices. There are a lot of sacrifices, and what it showed is that the land that they were going to go into was fertile and going to be able to provide for all these sacrifices. You're out in the wilderness, like, how are we going to do this? We can barely scrape together everything. We're subsistence living out here. How are we going to be able to? We, we we're eating manna. We were begging for quail. How are we going to be able to sacrifice all these bulls and sheep and goat, goats and all these other animals and give all this grain and wine? It because the land which is promised to them was so lush, it was so fertile that they would be able to have all of these offerings and be able to offer them to the to the Lord. The abundant provision of the land was going to be anticipated. And it was going to be realized. Now, I'll go back there for a second. Notice just a couple quick things. I don't have them in the slides there. But notice a couple things about this this passage here. You're going to see, like, it's the first day. On the first day, uh, you're going to have this holy convocation and the offerings that are going to be offered. Notice in verse 13, 13 young bulls are going to be offered. Two rams, 14 lambs of the first year, They shall be without blemish. Their meat offering shall be flour mingled with oil. Three-tenths of the parts of uh, all these different things, the the deals that are going to be of the flour that's going to be offered. But then notice in verse 17, the second day you're going to have 12 young bulls. And then go down to verse 20. The third day you're going to have 11 young bulls. And it's going to continue to decrease until that seventh day. On that seventh day, There's going to be this perfect number of bulls. Here's seven bulls that are going to be offered. And then on the eighth day, the last day of the feast, there's just going to be one. Why it it jumps like that, we don't know. God, that's what God said to do. But there's this anticipation that goes through. This this leading up to this last great day of the festival. And there's a lot that goes on with it. And someday when I teach on the feast we'll go through all the extra stuff that occurs even into new testament times and how it points to Jesus and really really some amazing stuff that that occurs right in the new testament around this feast. It is an it is an exciting, joyous celebration. Think about how exciting it would be to think about all of those things and you're in the wilderness and say man when we get in the land that's going to be God's blessing that we're going to be able to out of our abundance give even back to him more. And even as Moses says, look in verse, uh, the end of the the verses there, uh, the end of uh, verse 39. These things that are going to be here, he's going to give this summary. All of these things that you shall do unto the Lord in your set feasts are going to be beside your vows and beside your free will offerings and for your burnt offerings and for your meat offerings and for your drink offerings and for your peace offerings. He says all of those feastings are going to be on top of what you're normally giving with your feasts and your, your free will offerings, your, your, your offerings to, to the Lord. And he said, Moses says to him, says, this is expected of you, God. Moses told the children of Israel according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. Moses wanted to make sure that they understood this. This was important. And why was it? What was so important that Israel and even us to understand about these feasts and about God's timetable and about the important expectations of God. What's so important? God is intentionally, as we've talked, inserting himself into the center of Israel's life. God is to be at the center. And to have a God-centered life, it requires devotion. It requires devotion to him. God is to, to be the priority in all aspects of life. He's the hub God is to be the priority with our time and with our treasure. Think about it in this in in the relationship to all these feasts. There were times that you were required weekly to rest, to stop. But I don't have the time. I have more important things to do. I have to keep making money so that I can have X, Y, and Z. I need more. God is more important than anything else in our time schedule. He is premier. He's also to have the priority with our treasure. All the the grain, it's coming in. Before I can even use it, it first must go part to him. My herds, I need to bring as a tithe and an offering to God part of my herds. That's my treasure. That's what my livelihood is. And God is saying, if I am to be central, you are going to have to be devoted to me in your time and in your treasure. And let, I, I don't know about you, but you look at the feasts. They took time and they took sacri- the, the sacrifices took treasure. It's easy for us usually to give one or another. For some of you, you're like, I don't have a lot financially and it's really easy for me to give time. For a lot of us, it's really easy to give treasure. Even though we say, oh, that's hard. We don't like to give treasure. But isn't it easier to give than to go? Isn't it easier to give of money than to come in and work? Isn't it easier to give money and say, well, we'll just pay for another staff member than to sacrifice time to study to teach a junior church or a Sunday school or whatever it is? Because when we think about it, especially as Americans, those two, our time and our treasure, that is very difficult for us to part with. That's, that's ingrained in us. And so we have to look and say, wait, if God is to be central, I need to be willing to devote time and treasure, not one or the other. The feast required both. Both. The daily provisions, the weekly provisions, the monthly sacrifices required both. God was saying, devote time and treasure to me. God-centered living requires that both of those be a priority for us to give to God. God God-centered living, it requires sacrifice. There's no way around it. You can't go through these two chapters and not see the importance of sacrifice you, if you were total to total up all of the regular offerings that are required from the daily through the yearly that must be done on top of not, not counting free will, peace offerings, all the other ones, just the ones that God says these must be done on a consistent basis, 113 bulls, 32 rams, 1,086 lambs, over a ton of flour, and more than 1,000 bottles of wine and oil. That's a lot. And that's going to require the sacrifice of the people. Because again, how did the priest get all this? It was through the tithes and the offerings of the everyday individual. Bringing it to God as a priority. Giving them part of what God has given to them. This does not include, as I said, the special offerings, the voluntary offerings, the family sin offerings, etc. But the questions come up. Two questions really come up at right about now in this passage. Why so much stuff and why so much blood? Why, why? Well, let's answer this real quick. Why so much stuff? Tithes and offerings were a mark of faith and trust to the Lord. And God says, I have given you all of this. You give back portions to me. By giving back a portion to God uh, of that which was given to God to sustain life, the people acknowledge his sovereignty and his ownership of all. This is not God, this is mine, and I'm giving you a little bit. This is God, this is yours. Thank you for all you have given to me. Let me give back a portion to you so that your ministry and worship of you can continue, so that you can be exalted among the nations and among the heathen and around the world. I, I don't hoard it because this is mine. I give back to you what is rightfully a portion of what is rightfully yours. What's interesting is that the cost of sacrifice was more for the offering than it is for the offerer. Think about it it cost me giving up my bull what did it cost my bull it cost my bull his life it, it cost me one of my lambs from the flock what did it cost the lamb it cost the lamb his life what did what did my sin cost it cost the lamb of god his life and my life is bought it's not mine He owns it. I give back portions of my time, portions of the blessings of my treasure to him. Not because we need money and we want, because God has granted me so much and it cost him so much that I want to give back out of gratitude, out of thankfulness and trust to know that as I give back to him, he's going to provide He'll provide the time for me to get all my other stuff done. If I seek first God's priorities and his kingdom, then all the other things, they'll take care of themselves. God will help with that. But I need to give my time, my treasures, make that a priority. Why so much blood? This is a, there's a lot of blood in this passage if you really think about it and you let your mind wrap around the sacrifices and the sacrificial system and the amount of blood that even in that last feast took place. If one desires to approach and to worship God, we have a problem. The Jews had the same problem. We have the same problem. What is that problem? We are all sinners. And because of our sinfulness, we are not able to approach our holy God. Sin is the great divider that alienates us from God. And so for us to be able to enter, our sin has to be paid for. There has to be, otherwise it's, it's, it's going to be death for us because the payment for our sin is death. And so sin must be paid for by death. Either someone or something takes our place when, when we die, uh, or they die or takes our place, or they're to die in our sins, or we're gonna die in our own sins. That's why we have what is called the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. It's necessary The sacrifices died and shed their blood to cover our sins. Their sins must be purified by blood. So must ours. Our sin must be covered by blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And yet all these animals, they could not forgive sins. They could cover the sins, but they could not forgive it. That is why Jesus Christ died on the cross. Because he was able to, through his shed blood, Forgive us of our sins. In order to approach God, we have to have a basis or an ability to approach Him. For Israel, they brought the sacrifices which allowed them to approach God. For us, the ultimate sacrifice is made through Jesus Christ. And it's called the vicarious atonement. Big words. What does it mean? A substitute is in our place. Someone vicarious. A substitute is killed so that we don't have to be killed. His blood is shed so that mine does not have to. He takes the wrath, so that I do not face the wrath. That is the joy of what Jesus Christ did. That is why there is so much blood, because it pictures the necessity of covering our sins, which are so heinous before God. And if we want to approach God, if you want to approach God, your sins must be covered. They must be forgiven. His blood was the covering for our sins. God, as he talks about the centrality of our life, Says there? Because of the death of the sacrifices, because of the atonement made, we can joyously celebrate. The, the, the God-centered life should be joyful. There should be excitement. These were feasts. They were festivals. Yes, there was the day of reflection, the, the reminders leading up to that, to reflect and to think about God. And even yes, in the festivals, there were moments of thinking back and, and reminding ourselves of what it is. My family and I recently, this year, had the opportunity to. to and a a Passover Seder. And it was really neat because one of the things that the individuals quickly told us is said, hey, this is not just a a somber be real. This is a day of rejoicing. It is an exciting time. Yes, there were moments of reflection, but it was a joy. It was a fun celebration. We had a really good time. And it it was such a learning. And my kids said, this was really and we got to talk about the word of God and God got to be the focus of these, the three and a half, four hours that we were there. And it was a joyous family time that was just a really neat opportunity. The, the festivals commemorated the great acts and the gloriousness of our God. Do we do that in our lives? Are you joyous when you worship? Are you joyful when you rest? Are you joyful when you get togethers with others and recount God's blessings? Or do you find yourself in the same traps that the... Face, grumbling, complaining, murmuring, and frustration. We need to be joyful because we have a great hope, and we have a glorious God, and he sits on the throne, and he gives us bountiful blessings, and he, he provides us with so much, and we need to be joyful, and we need to be excited about the life that he has granted to us. We, if God's at the center, there will be joy. Sure, there will be reflection. Sure, there will be difficulties. It's not all going to be perfect, but there ought to be joy. Even as James says, in the midst of trials, we should still be joyful. The God-centered life requires consistent worship. I probably should say constant worship because it is every part of their life. There needs to be personal. There needs to be corporate worship. We need to be gathering together. We need to have times together as a body of believers. We need to have personal time. We need to have time and fellowship with the other believers outside of these walls. But we need to make the idea of worship, both personally and corporately, a priority in our life. Think about it this way. When you look through chapter 28 and 29, what day of the Jewish year was worship not taking place? Well... He starts with the daily sacrifices. He moves to the weekly sacrifices. He moves to the monthly sacrifices and festivals. And then he moves to the yearly sacrifices. When was God not being worshiped? That's the point. God was at the center of their life. He was always being worshiped. Because when God is at the center of our life, we worship him in our work. We worship him at school. He's part of it. We elevate him. People see God through us. We exalt him. He is to be part of everything that we are doing. What's the point? Make God the center of your life because God is central to life. That's chapter 28 and 29 in a nutshell. All these feasts, all these sacrifices, all these All this time, all this treasure is about the one who's at the center of our life. And if he is at the center of our life, worship, giving of time and treasure, it will not be inconvenient. It will be a joyful, blessed opportunity for us to worship our great God. Make God the center of your life because he is central to life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to exalt you in every facet of life. Lord, help us to be thinking about how you influence at work, at church, at school, with our time, with our treasures. Lord, help us to serve you. Help us to to support ministries. Help us to look to you and to give back to you because you've given so much to us. For it's in your blessed and holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day.